You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Good morning. It's a joy to be together as we worship the Lord. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to Philippians 2. And if you are four or five, you're welcome to head with the Bowen family to Bible study. So head on that way. Well, Merry Christmas. It is a joy to be together. And what a special time of year as we have spent this month of December meditating and thinking deeply about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And during this month of December, we've thought deeply about the incarnation of the Son of God, what it means for the eternal word to become flesh and to dwell among us. And so we've looked at several different key passages in the New Testament about the person of Christ. And today we find ourselves in another important passage about Christ, here in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to focus our attention today on verse 6, 7, and 8, but I want to read uh, verse 1 through 11 of chapter 2 to give us the context of this passage. So let's start reading in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you might yet again come and serve us at this hour as your word is open. And Lord, as we long to see more of your glory, to understand more of what it means for you to become a servant, to take on flesh, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we might treasure and cherish the Lord Jesus Christ this day with sweetness yet experienced. And Lord, that you might add your blessing not only to the reading of your word, but to the preaching of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, a missionary once gave an account of an African chieftain 
And in this tribe in Africa, the chieftain was the strongest man in the village. And he was set apart as the chieftain by being adorned with wonderful robes and this large headdress that signified that not only was he the most important man in the village, not only was the chief of the village, but he was the strongest man in the village. And one day in this African village, there was a man who was carrying some water from the well, and he happened to somehow or the other fall down the shaft into the deep well, unable to get out, hurt and damaged, helpless at the bottom with a broken leg. So the rescue required that somebody in the village would climb down the slits on the well walls, down into the well, and to carry this man out on his shoulders, a feat which, as you might imagine, required incredible strength. So no one in the village had the power to help this man. The people tried, and so eventually the people in the village called the chieftain, the strongest man in the village, to come and help. And so when the chief saw this man in distress, he took off his headdress, he laid aside his robe and folded them neatly, and he descended down into the well. He placed that man with the crippled leg, the broken leg on his shoulders, and he climbed him out of the well to safety. You see, as we think about that chieftain, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in his incarnation that the eternal word of God sets aside his heavenly glory, like the African chieftain sets aside his robes and his headdress. But just as the chief remained the chief, even without his headdress, so too did Jesus, the son of God, stay divine, even as he stooped down and rescued us. You see, on this Sunday before Christmas, we ought to marvel at what Jesus has done in his great humiliation. That he who is supremely great, preeminent over all, would make himself gladly low and humble. That he who sat in the realm of glory would now be placed into a bed of straw. That he who heard for all eternity the angels sing his praises now wails as a newborn before an audience of measly shepherds. How wonderful are the events of Christmas, and how marvelous the day of our Savior's birth. So today we turn our attention to a well-known section of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2. And as we study this text, we want to consider the, the willing humiliation of Christ, who was in the form of God, but took on the form of a slave. So let me give you a broad overview of this text and indeed of this letter to the Philippians. Paul enjoyed a wonderful, sweet fellowship with this particular church, the church at Philippi. And he writes with great appreciation and fondness and, and love for them, for their partnership in his ministry, for their financial support in his missionary work. And compared to many of the other epistles that we read in the New Testament, the Philippian church seems joyous and vibrant. They aren't abandoning the gospel like the Galatian church, nor are they filled with the sort of carnality and, and lawsuits that engulf the Corinthian church. But Paul seems, even as he writes and as to this healthy church, he intuits that this faithful church appears to be facing a temptation to rivalry 
and pride among its members. And Paul ever so tactfully gives them repeated corrections to these temptations throughout the letter. Paul talks about in chapter 1 that some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but Paul says, I rejoice no matter what, because whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. In Philippians 3, he will warn against the Judaizers, who in their great pride put their confidence in the flesh. And then later on, he will also call for reconciliation between a spat between Euodia and Syntyche, two ladies in the church that have some sort of conflict that seem to be creating some sort of tension within the congregation. So while the Philippian church seems to be healthy, there's a warning here, right, that even faithful churches have lingering sin that need constant correction from God's word. Paul, who is the planting apostle and who is the church-supported missionary of the Philippian church, he writes to encourage them in the faith, and he writes to encourage them to put aside this attitude of self-exaltation and pride. And so Paul addresses these concerns most directly in the opening of chapter 2. When he admonishes the church, look at verse 3 in chapter 2. We just read it. When he admonishes the church to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And as Paul urges the church to look to the interest of others, he begins to hold up three examples in the letter to the Philippians. He holds up Jesus as an example, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Indeed, imitation is a theme in this letter as Paul urges them in chapter 3, verse 17, to join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So the text before us about Christ has a moral emphasis to it when it comes to the context of Philippians. Paul is urging the church to follow in the example of Christ. So he's not intending to lay down a definitive and theologically nuanced statement of the person of Christ. That's not his aim here. But yet the text does help us understand the identity of Christ, both in his humiliation and in his exaltation. So the the text before us, the narrative flow of this Christ hymn has this sort of V-shaped pattern to it. Right? The example of Christ is called upon in verse 5. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then starting in verse 6 of our text, we begin the descent of Christ's humiliation. And we reach rock bottom of that descent, the bottom part of the V, if you will, in verse 8, where Christ is obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then at that point, after verse 8, we begin to make our rise, the ascent, right? As Jesus is given the name that is above every name, as he's vindicated by God, as he is highly exalted and confessed confessed as Lord by everyone. So this text has a lot to teach us. And so the ethical considerations of Christ's example for our lives, that's the main thrust of this passage in the context of Philippians. But as we have been spending time this December considering the glory of Christ in this Christmas series, we have been interested in the incarnation. Particularly, who is Jesus? Who is the person of Christ? And what happened when the Son of God became incarnate? 
And so those are the questions that are driving our study of this passage this morning as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. And with these questions, we turn our attention towards the humiliation section of this Christ hymn by studying verses 6, 7, and 8. That's where we're going to focus our attention. And from these verses, we learn that the eternal Christ has made himself a slave for us. The eternal Christ has made himself a slave for us. Let me first emphasize this section of scripture, the form of God, Christ in his eternal glory in verse six. So in verse six, we see that though Christ, look at the text, verse six, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What a verse. <laughs> what, what, does, what does this verse mean? Let's take carefully some of these phrases here. What does it mean when the text says that Christ was in the form of God? The form. The word form or morphe in the Greek language is critical in this text because it makes its appearance again in verse 7 when Christ takes on the form, the morphe, of a servant. And unfortunately, this word in the Greek language doesn't really have a great English equivalent. Form is sort of the best word that we can use in our English language to communicate it and to translate it. But in English, we use the word form to describe just an external shape, like putting Play-Doh into a mold and impressing it into an animal. It's in the form of a giraffe or an elephant or something like that. So the original word here goes beyond this simple English definition of the word form, and it indicates, Morphe indicates that everything essential to divinity Jesus has. Jesus shared it. As one commentator put it, it means that it means that which truly characterizes a given reality. So the word form in the text functions similarly, like we saw last week in Colossians 1:15, to the word image. The phrase here that Jesus is in the form of God means that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is God. The NIV gets to the meaning of the text as it translates it as who being in the very nature God. That's what's implied. That's what Paul's communicating here. In other words, what Paul says when he uses this word form is he's making a clear and definitive statement about Jesus's divinity. He is God. He is eternal. And Jesus, the eternal word, exists before the event of the incarnation. The word has always existed. The eternal word is fully divine, and he shares the fullness of the divine nature. So the meaning of form becomes even more apparent in the text as we look at the following phrase, as we see that he has equality with God. Jesus did not aspire to be equal with God, but he is equal with God in every sense of the word. The, the following phrase is fascinating as it is difficult, because look at what the text says in verse, verse 6. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, equality with God makes sense, mainly as we know that he is in the form of God. But what does it mean when the text says that he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped? Now, this is the only text in the New Testament 
where this verb appears. The word hapargmon rarely occurs even in Greek literature. It's a bit of an unusual, strange word that wasn't often used. And it's a word that in its connotations in classical literature often has situations of robbery, somebody stealing something. That obviously can't be what this word means in this particular context. So scholars have wrestled with how do we translate this word, a thing to be grasped, what does this mean? Let me share with you a few ways scholars have tried to understand this verse, and then I'll tell you what I think the best reading of this verse is. Some wish to read this verb, a thing to be grasped, or pardmon, well, they want to read it as Christ's divinity was a prize to be seized. They lean into this sort of robbery, thievery language, and they think that Jesus had to climb to achieve the status of divinity, but yet he decided not to do so. Obviously, that's an incorrect reading of this text, isn't it? Because that would imply that Jesus wasn't fully divine, that he had to aspire or to achieve to divinity. Such an interpretation here would deny the plain biblical teaching that Jesus is one with God, and indeed it would contradict what Paul said just a few words earlier when he talked about how Jesus was in the form of God. That can't be what that means. Others read it as if Jesus' divinity is a privilege to be retained, something to be retained. They see Jesus' divinity as something he has always possessed. So there's no robber here, but yet they, they, they instead talk about clinging to this deserved privilege of his equality with God. And he gives up that divine right in order to serve. So that's a better reading than the first one, but it still doesn't quite grasp the meaning and the significance of this verb in the context of the passage. So I think a third reading best captures the sense of this Greek word and best captures Paul's meaning and intention as it sees that Jesus's divinity is not something to be exploited, exploited. In other words, Christ chooses not to exploit his equality with God to promote his own self-interest. Scholars have indeed verified this use of the word in classic Greek literature, but it also really does make sense within the context of these moral exhortations in the text of holding up Jesus as this example for the Philippian church. So theologian Robert Leatham put it that harpodmon, this Greek word here, should be seen simply as referring to something to be seized upon and used to one's advantage. Christ, who was equal with God, chose not to use his position, status, and nature for his own ends, did not look after his own interests, but rather attended to the interests of others. That's what this verb is getting at here. I think the, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, translates it this way. Existing, Christ existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, right? Something to be exploited. The, the, the one challenge, though, with a word like exploit, and you're beginning to get an insight of how difficult it is to be a Bible translator and to think through translating this uh, the, the Greek New Testament into English. But the, one of the challenges with a word like exploit is that we often use that word negatively, don't we? As if we are exploiting a loophole. We're exploiting tax laws. You see, the definition of exploit often has that sort of negative view in our minds, but that can't be what's in view here because Christ was not obliged to serve us in any way. Christ certainly had no had the right, if he wanted to, to exploit his divinity. Indeed, it wouldn't be exploiting. It's his privilege and his right to do so. He had every right 
to cast the thought of the incarnation far from his mind. Even during his earthly ministry, Jesus lived a life of righteousness for us. Jesus never once exploited his divinity for his own sake. You may remember the silly and heretical movie called Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey from several years ago, right? And in the movie, Bruce is this bumbling TV reporter, and somehow he's given divine power. And of course, he uses that divine power in a completely selfish way to promote himself, to exalt himself. Well, thankfully, in more ways than one, Jim Carrey isn't Jesus. Jesus never exploited his divinity to make his life easier or to exalt himself. Surely Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet sin. But friend, have you considered all the ways that Jesus was tempted in a way that we could never know? He did not make bread out of stones when he was hungry. He did not call down a legion of angels at his arrest to protect him. Even while during the excruciating pain of the nails upon the cross, he never for a moment used his divinity to numb the pain for a single millisecond. Jesus did not exploit his divine power to protect himself or to create comfort for himself in any way. Instead, he only used his divinity in complete obedience to his father's will and in service to you and me. That's the only reason he used it. You see, here's the heart of our Christ, drawn to sacrificial love for others. Jesus is generous and humble and serving, and he abounds in love for sinners like us. And even though Christ was in the form of God, fully equal with God, even in the flesh, he did not exploit his divinity for selfishness, but he condescended in selflessness. In summary, what we see is that Christ is the eternal God in the full form of the divine, of the exact nature as God, and yet he did not use his divine rights to serve himself or exploit them for his own interests. Instead, Christ gives himself freely, pouring out himself for human creatures like us. And that leads secondly to the form of a servant, Christ and his humiliation. We see this in verse 7 and 8. The key verb in this section is found in verse 7. But he emptied himself. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to empty himself in his incarnation? At the turn of the 20th century, when theological liberalism was at its peak, it was popular to suggest an erroneous view called the kenosis theory. And kenosis is taken from the Greek word here for empty. And these theologians suggested wrongly that Christ emptied himself of his divinity at his incarnation, leaving it behind in heaven in order to fully become a man. Now today, this view is discredited by virtually every scholar, as in the New Testament's clear four out of five uses of the verb to empty in the New Testament are used metaphorically. So when we hear that Jesus is emptying himself, one of the things we automatically think is, well, what is he emptying of? Instead, the verb empty, though, here is used in a metaphorical sense, a symbolic sense, as Jesus pours himself out generously for our sake. 
the, the idea of emptying is actually used in this chapter in a similar way. Look a little bit later on. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Paul's describing his own ministry as one poured out as a drink offering. In other words, Jesus, in his incarnation, doesn't leave behind his divinity in heaven, but he dumps the whole cup of his glory and his goodness and his love upon us in his incarnation. In other words, Christ holds nothing back. He leaves nothing for himself. I love how the King James translation puts it, that Christ made himself of no reputation. So from this main verbal phrase, he emptied himself. Paul tells us how uh, he did this emptying by two phrases. He says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and by being born in the likeness of men. Let's take each one of those phrases at a time. First, Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Astonishing, right? That Christ, who was in the form, the morphe of God, now takes on the morphe, the form of a servant. What a contrast. That he who had the right to be served chooses himself to become our servant. That he who deserves unmatched glory condescends as our slave. Perhaps the, the language of servant here references the servant of the Lord passages in Isaiah, but I think more likely here is the image of Greco-Roman slavery. That the Greek word doulos can be translated as servant or slave. And so for the proudly Roman Philippi, the word would immediately bring the idea of Greco-Roman slavery. Doulos. Jesus was in the form of God now takes the form of a slave. Now remember our definition of the word form, meaning that everything that is essential to being a slave is now applied to Jesus. That Jesus from the highest heights of divine glory stoops so low to become a slave of humanity. What an infinite humiliation. What a glorious condescension. What precious love that God has given us in Christ. But second, Christ took the form of a servant when he poured out himself for us by being born in the likeness of men. Being born in the likeness of men. Here is the incarnation. To serve us, to become our slave, Jesus added to his true divinity, true humanity. The Lord Jesus was born in the likeness of men. To serve us, Christ had to become one, un, one of us, but Jesus not only became one of us, he became the lowest of the low of us. He became a slave. And so the depth of Jesus's humiliation finds its low point as he, the God-man, has come to serve us as he is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The word cross was a vulgar word to polite Roman society. It was a crude term that would cause its hearers to tremble in disgust. Crucifixion was the torturous death reserved for a slave, never to be used for a Roman citizen, let alone to be used for God in the flesh, who would succumb to this horrible and terrible death. The Roman citizens couldn't even fathom such a thing. But that's exactly what Paul says. 
That Jesus, in the form of God, did not exploit his divinity for his own advantage, but he poured himself out. He emptied himself out for us, becoming in flesh, becoming one of us, becoming a slave for us, and become obedient to his father, even to the point of death, enduring the torturous death, deserving only for the lowest of the low in society. So has Christ done for us. What breathtaking humiliation that God in Christ would do such a thing. Let me give you some application from this text. I've got four for us I want us to consider. First, stand in awe at the infinite humiliation of Christ for you. Stand in awe of this. The distance between Christ's glory and his incarnation, this is is an infinite gap we're talking about here. Think of how high and lifted up and exalted the Son of God existed for all all eternity. Think of the distance by which Jesus the Son condescended to become one of us. And indeed, not just one of us, but to become a slave for us. Wonder at how large a gap that gap between creator and creature must be. The highest God to the lowest of humanity. If anyone were entitled to be exalted, it would be Jesus. As God of heaven, he is high and lifted up. He deserves the praise from every one of his creatures. But yet Jesus stripped off his kingly robes to enflesh himself in the fragility of humanity. And he became the lowest of men. He didn't become a wealthy emperor, but he became a poor Jewish peasant a pauper who lived most of his adult life homeless. He was despised and rejected by men, one by whom men hid their faces when they saw him. The the preeminent deity became not only human, but the lowest of humans. He, He left the bright glory of heaven behind for the darkness of Golgotha's hill, from the throne of heaven to a cross of wood. He abandoned the praise of his angels to receive the mocking insults of his human creatures. That he cast aside his kingly robes to hang naked and exposed in shame upon the cross. That he abandoned the comfort of his heavenly luxuries to experience the sufferings of nail-pierced hands. He severed himself from the sweet fellowship that he enjoyed with his father to become the bearer of human sin. He became obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Marvel, church, and how wondrous it is that Christ would humiliate himself in such a way for us. The, the distance of his condescension, of his humiliation, it can't be measured. The extent of this humiliation, it can't be calculated or measured either by miles or by light years. No one has stooped lower. No one has humbled himself like Jesus, and Christ did so willingly, gladly, joyously. Notice the emphasis of the text that he emptied himself and he humbled himself. Humility is not being brought low, but choosing to be brought low for the sake of another. John Chrysostom put it this way, he is lowly minded who humbles himself, not he who is lowly by necessity. (laughs) You can be low in society and still be proud. But what Christ did is that he who was great chose to make himself lowly 
That's true humility. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, The Excellency of Christ, put it this way. He says, Christ, as he is God, is infinitely great and high above all. He is higher than the kings of the earth, for he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is higher than the heavens and higher than the highest angels of heavens. So great is he that all men, all kings and princes are as worms of the dust before him. All nations are as the drop of the bucket and the light dust of the balance. And yet he is one of infinite condescension. None are so low or inferior, but Christ's condescension is sufficient to take a gracious notice of them. He condescends not only to the angels, humbling himself to behold the things that are done in heaven, but he also condescends to such poor creatures as men. And that not only so as to take notice of princes and great men, but of those that are of the meanest rank and degree, the poor of the world. As Edwards notes, Jesus not only made himself infinitely low by becoming man, but by becoming a pauper and slave, even to the poorest of society. You see, part of our response to the events of Christ's incarnation ought to be humility and all. That God would do such a thing. Like Mary at the event of Jesus' birth, may we, this Christmas season, treasure up all these things, pondering them in our hearts. Marvel that God would stoop so low for your sake. Let your meditations upon this truth lead you like the shepherds to the newborn king with unencumbered tears of glad joy and wonder. But secondly, if Christ has gone to such lengths to serve you, let him do so. Do not resist him. At the Passover meal, which would soon spill over into Christ's betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion. Jesus' heart was heavy at that dinner because his hour was soon come. The Midrash forbade a Hebrew, even a Hebrew slave, from doing the dirty and menial task of foot washing. With all the planning of the Passover meal, none of the disciples recruited a non-Jewish slave for the job of foot washing. Somebody dropped the ball on the planning committee. Maybe why you don't have committees, right? In the ancient world, what you did is you ate laying on your side, reclining at table. So washing your feet was essential not only for good manners, but for hygiene as your feet were by the table. And indeed, on the dusty roads of Israel, their feet quickly blackened with grime and dirt like a five-year-old playing barefoot in the yard on a summer day. They were filthy, gross, if you will. So the disciples start reclining at the table for Passover, shamefully dangling their filthy feet by the table because they were all too proud to take up the task of foot washing themselves. Despite Jesus' recent teaching repeatedly to his disciples about how greatness in his kingdom meant being a servant, nobody among the disciples volunteered for the task. Pride made them incapable of serving. So they sat at the table with defiled and dirty feet because everyone was too proud to do the job of foot washing. But not Jesus. Seeing this scene, Jesus got up from the table He took off his outer garment. He took a towel and he tied it around his waist. 
And the disciples watched in stunned silence and horror as their teacher poured water into a basin, got on his knees, and began to wash the feet of his disciples. Only Peter dared to speak out and protest at that moment. Lord, do you wash my feet? And his protest continued. Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And the Lord Jesus replied, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You see, the glorious God incarnate stoops to our feet as a slave to wash us. In all our filthiness, in all our sin, in all our shame, Christ bends the knee at your foot. He has come to make you clean. He has come to be your slave. And would you spurn him? Would you protest that if Christ has made himself so low as to serve a sinner like you, do not resist him. Do not buck up in pride now, but in the awkwardness of Christ's love, let him wash your feet. The only way that you can be clean from your sin, the only way that you can have a share with Christ in his resurrected life is if you let him serve you. Turn from your sin this day. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who came in the flesh not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thirdly, if Christ has so served you, will you not serve your brothers and sisters? Peter protested Jesus' service. He didn't want anything to do with it. He was proud. He didn't understand the nature of Christ's mission and what he came to do. But in Christ's kingdom, Jesus teaches us repeatedly that greatness means that you give up your life for others. It means that like Christ, you think of yourself last. It means that you give love and forgiveness and service to one another, even at high personal cost. As C.S. Lewis put it, he said, humility is not thinking of yourself, thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. If Christ would stoop so low as to serve you, surely you can serve your brothers and sisters in the local church. Look not to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. As you live your life in the local church, do you do this? Do you serve others as Christ has served you? How many times have you stayed home from community group just because you were tired? How many times have you prioritized me time over the corporate gathering of God's people? How many times have you failed to help a brother in need so that you can treat yourself and buy a new toy? How many times have you rushed out of church instead of taking five extra minutes to pray with a sister struggling in life? How many times do you ignore a church member asking for prayer in the church center app instead of stopping right where you are to pray for them? How many times do you grumble that you are yet again scheduled to serve on Sunday morning? Church, if Christ has so emptied himself for our sake, 
Why do we selfishly leave any of our lives in the cup for ourselves? That if you wish to be great in Christ's kingdom, if you wish to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, then friend, brothers and sisters, make yourself a slave to everyone else in this room. Think nothing of yourself. Nothing. Have the mind of Christ who made himself nothing for our sake. And then fourth, the Christian life follows the pattern of Christ. Humiliation, then vindication. This is the pattern of Christ's life by which we as his disciples follow. That those who will be exalted later first make themselves servants of all. That's the pattern. The second part of the Christ hymn emphasizes the glory of Christ that he receives because of his humiliation and service to us. Because he made himself so low, the Father highly exalted him. And so the Father raised his son from the grave upon that cross. Jesus died the death of a slave upon the cross for our sake, but yet the Father vindicates his son. He raises him. He exalts him above high. C.S. Lewis beautifully captures both the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ and how we in our lives follow that same pattern. Lewis writes, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he created, but he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. As Gregory of Nazianzus put it, he says, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed, but that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. You see, Christ, by taking on our true humanity, also redeems us and restores us and raises us up with him in Christ. That by Christ's obedience to the point of death, he brings reconciliation to us by his blood. He unites all things to himself. So therefore, Christ is rightly given the name that is above every name, a name praised in heaven and on earth and under the earth, a name to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. All will one day recognize the glory of this Christ who made himself low for our sake. And if you are in Christ, your life follows his example. Your life follows his pattern. So make yourself low now. Make yourself a slave to others now. Pour out your love to others now. Pour out yourself to your neighbor for the cause of the Great Commission. And take heart that those who humble themselves now will one day be exalted. That if you are in Christ, your life follows the same pattern as Jesus' life. First, humiliation then exaltation. So as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, may the glory of Christ fill us with great joy. Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon cross. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, as we come, we marvel at your humility. Lord, as we consider the incarnation, we can't even fathom how low you stooped for us. But Lord, yet as we have read from your word and as we've considered carefully this day, you who were in the form of God took on the form of a slave. Lord, that's what you did when you became incarnate and dwelt among us. So Lord Jesus, we pray, Lord, that your humility and your service to us, Lord, that it would move us to great worship and joy and gladness. Lord, that we would be humbled that you would do such a thing, dying on the cross as a slave for us. So, Lord, we pray that we as Christians who have repented and believed in Jesus would so follow in the pattern of our King, that we would become slave to all. And, Lord, that we might one day share in the exaltation of Christ as we share in his resurrection. But, Father, I do pray for all who are here, Lord, who have yet to be served by Jesus. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would humble them this day. Lord, help them not to buck up in pride like Peter, who refused to let the Savior wash his feet. But Lord, I pray today that you would help them to see that there is nothing they can do to save themselves. There's nothing they can do to atone for their sins. There's nothing they can do to make themselves clean. But if they want a share in heaven, if they want to share in Christ, they must let Jesus serve them. And so, Father, I pray that you would humble them this day and that you would lead them to repentance of their sin and that they would put their faith in the Savior who has served them by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Lord, as we consider the incarnation and Lord, as we prepare our hearts for this Christmas, Lord, may we marvel and wonder and joy and in worship over you, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became a slave for us. Lord, we worship you and we love you. And Lord, as we come to worship you now, we pray that our hearts will be filled with joy. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.